Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, and uh, I am New York Historical's president and CEO, and I'm thrilled to see, wow, a really, um, you know, just about packed house this evening in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Tonight's program, Leaders in War, Admiral Lord Nelson, is a distinguished Lehrman Fellow at New York Historical Society Lecture. Our great and visionary trustee and noted Lincoln and financial history scholar, Mr. Lewis E. Lehrman, is responsible for creating this series, and I want to acknowledge and uh, thank him, and also to add yet another credit to his very long list of accomplishments by congratulating him on uh, not only the recent publication of his latest book, Churchill, Roosevelt, and Company Studies in Character and Statecraft, but the absolutely marvelous reviews that the book has received and um, the, uh, the published reviews and also the, um, the unpublished oral reviews that I've been getting from a lot of you who have uh, bought the book and read it much to your delight. So congratulations and thank you, Lou. <clears throat> Um, I should also say that Mr. Lehrman will lecture here on the book at New York Historical um, on Wednesday, May 3rd, so we'll hope to see all of you at that program. I would also like to recognize and thank other trustees who are with us this evening, our great chair, Pam Schaffler, and I want to thank Pam for how her outstanding leadership of this institution. Uh, and uh, also uh, the chair of our executive committee, Mr. Richard Reese, and trustees, Cy Sternberg and Michael Weisberg. And thanks very, very much to all of you for your great work. <laughs> Tonight's program will uh, last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. The Q&A will be conducted via written questions on note cards. You should have received a note card and pencil as you entered the auditorium this evening. If you have not, uh, we have colleagues going up and down the aisles who can supply them to you. The note cards with your questions will be collected uh, later on in the program. Uh, we also um, want to tell you that there will be a formal book signing following the program, and copies of Andrew Roberts' books will be available for sale in our New York History store. We are thrilled to welcome back Andrew Roberts, the Distinguished Lehrman Fellow at the New York Historical Society. He is currently visiting professor in the War Studies Department at King's College London, and he is a fellow of the Royal Historical Society. He is also the author or editor of 19 books um, and the recipient of many prestigious awards, including the William Penn Prize in 2012, the Los Angeles Times Biography Prize in 2015, and the Bradley Prize in 2016. In 2007, he just delivered the prestigious White House Lecture, and he is currently working on a biography of Winston Churchill. As always, uh, before we begin, I'd like to ask you to please uh, make sure that anything that makes a noise, like a cell phone, is switched off. And now, please join me in welcoming Andrew Roberts to the podium. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a great honor to be invited to address you this evening. And thank you very much indeed, Louise, for those uh, kind words. 
Adjectives and phrases that have been applied to Admiral Nelson in recent biographies um, and articles and reviews include gauche, vain, priggish, hypochondriacal, petulant, undignified, self-pitying, nervy, emotional, disappointed, irritable, embittered, peevish, taciturn, a political simpleton, and an insignificant private man. <laughs> Many of these are true, but he was also unquestionably the greatest military hero that England has ever produced, indeed the very personification of heroism. In his brief 47 years before he was shot down in the prime of his almost unfeasibly adventurous life, Horatio Nelson mixed fearless gallantry, unrelenting aggression, a powerful sense of duty, faith in God, uh, hatred of the French in general and French revolutionaries in particular, uh, and a genius both for naval strategy and tactics with monstrous vanity, uh, ceaseless self-promotion and a driving ambition yet as I hope that these now nine lectures, uh, this is the penultimate one, have consistently underlined over these past three years, ambition is not a sin if allied to extraordinary ability, which in his case it undoubtedly was. Benjamin Disraeli wrote to Queen Victoria in 1879, it's quite true that Field Marshal Wolseley is an egotist and a braggart, so was Nelson. Men of action when eminently successful in early life are generally boastful and full of themselves. The Prime Minister was right to remind the Queen Empress that a great man doesn't also have to be a sweet and modest one. Referring to oneself in the third person is an unfailing litmus test of vanity um, and pomposity, um, indeed of incipient megalomania. And Horatio Nelson spectacularly failed it, uh, writing of himself, Nelson is as far above doing a scandalous or mean action as the heavens are above the earth. Uh, he also published a brief account of his own career, ending with the words, go thou and do likewise, um, doubtless knowing that no one could. Yet for all his personal failings and the cruel ill-treatment of his long-suffering wife Fanny, albeit in an era when divorce was practically impossible to attain, Horatio Nelson saved his country from a far more serious danger of invasion than even that posed later by Adolf Hitler, and set it on a path of domination of the world's oceans for over a century. Besides these gigantic achievements, ladies and gentlemen, who cares about a bit of peevishness and undignified petulance? In the case of Horatio Nelson, several of his over 100 biographers should get their priorities right. His story is a sublime one of patriotism, courage and leadership, and two centuries after his death, it still has the power to thrill the hearts of Britons. Born in Burnham Thorpe in Norfolk on uh, the 29th of September 1758, the fifth surviving son of its uh, rector, Edmund Nelson, Horatio went to sea before his 13th birthday aboard the 64-gun warship Raisonnable under the command of his maternal uncle, Captain Morris Suckling. He was violently seasick, a uh, malaise that stayed with him throughout his career. His first long seagoing experience was gained on a journey to the West Indies on a merchantman, and, and soon afterwards he rejoined his uncle on the guardship um, Triumph. The Royal Navy was a tough upbringing, um, for a boy who had lost his mother when he was nine. Ratings, though not the officers like him, were often the sweepings of the prison hulks or the gleanings of the press gangs. 
who deserted the moment they could. The traditions of the Navy in those days have been summed up as rum, sodomy, and the lash. Um, you got a, t- a tot of rum once a day when the sun went over the ar- yard arm, and the other two came as regularly as one's temperament or behaviour dictated. Captain Suckling ensured the young Horatio became expert at navigation and boat sailing, and he soon knew the pilotage of the rivers Medway and Thames excellently. His um, training in practical seamanship could hardly have been better, and he was chosen for an Arctic voyage aged only 14 as coxswain of the captain's gig. On his return, he was sent to the East Indies on board the 20-gun seahorse, but travelling to every station from Bengal to Bassara, he caught malaria and had to be invalided home. I almost wished myself overboard, he later said, of um, this time. As his ship rounded the Cape of Good Hope, Nelson had a strange, still unexplained vision of a radiant orb and a sudden glow, which he took to be a direct sign from the Almighty, and as he put it, a sudden glow of patriotism was kindled within me. I will be a hero, and confiding to Providence will brave every danger. Nelson's powerful, lifelong sense of personal destiny seems to have stemmed from this strange teenage spiritual experience. By April 1777, Nelson was 18, had passed his naval examinations, and had been promoted to second lieutenant aboard the 32-gun frigate Lowestoft under the command of his friend, Captain William Locker. Locker's military philosophy was simple. Lay a Frenchman close and you will beat him. It was supported by practical evidence of the better-trained and provisioned Royal Navy being able to fire three broadsides in the same 120-second time period in which it took the French and Spanish navies to fire two. It was a fundamental lesson of warfare of the age of fighting sail that Nelson was to take to heart. There's a seat down the front here for you, uh, Joy, if you want to come down. No, literally, it's, it's just here. We have here, ladies and gentlemen, the lady who is going to be publishing all these lectures by Penguin. Um, I was worried that she wasn't going to turn up. Um, don't stand at the back. No? Okay, well, t- take a seat anyway, because otherwise it'll be off-putting uh, for me. Um, anyway, isn't that wonderful that these lectures are all going to be published? That's, that's uh, very good, pleasing. Thank you, Joy. Yeah. After serving in Jamaica, he was promoted to post-captain and after only four months short of his 21st birthday, transferred to the flagship of the Commander-in-Chief, Sir Peter Parker. He rose by dint of his charm, intelligence, application and superb maritime ability, and nor was he hindered by Suckling's promotion to the controllership of the Royal Navy. Nepotism might have been an 18th century disease, but it helped the career of our finest naval master and commander. In January 1780, by then a captaining a frigate, Nelson took part in the disastrous amphibious assault against the Spanish possessions of San Juan. Yellow fever killed the vast majority of the British seamen who died in that campaign, and Nelson himself only survived because he was recalled to Jamaica suffering from ague, and afterwards had to return to England where he spent a year rebuilding his health. When he did uh, go back to sea, sailing to Canada, he then got knocked up with scurvy. Commanding the frigate HMS Boreas on an unpopular mission trying to prevent Britain's West Indian colonists trading with the newly independent United States of America. He was not as compassionate a commander as Victorian and later hagiographers have made out. In 18 months commanding the Boreas, he ordered the flogging of 54 of his 122 seamen and 12 of his 20 marines, an astonishing 47% of the crew. 
He thought Christmas Day was as good as any other to hang a mutineer. It was also as captain of the Boreas that Nelson met and quickly married a young widow from the island of Nevis, Frances Nesbitt, niece of the president of the council there in 1787. She was a somewhat mousy and insipid, but a kind and loving wife who did not deserve the very public humiliations that lay in store. There soon followed six years of peace in which Nelson had to eke out an existence on half pay, living with his parents and developing his reactionary Tory views, which were profoundly opposed to the precepts of the French Revolution. They, uh, these even went so far as to include a wholly atavistic, even by then, belief in the divine right of kings. He was delighted, therefore, when in January 1793, Britain declared war against revolutionary France after the execution of Louis XVI. On the outbreak of war, Nelson was given his first large ship, the 64-gun frigate Agamemnon, and ordered to join the Mediterranean fleet. It was when he was stationed at Naples that he first met Lady Hamilton, the wife of the British minister there, Sir William Hamilton. If ever you have the time, go across the park to the Frick to see George Romney's rosy-cheeked, smiling uh, Emma Hamilton, the saddest picture in the gallery when one thinks of the shambolic, debt-ridden alcoholic that she wound up. The spaniel she's holding seems to be interrogating you, but Emma herself is just blue-eyed, uh, peachy-skinned and happy, with a turquoise ribbon in her hair and a trusting smile. On the 12th of July, 1794, while besieging the Corsican town of Calvi, a cannonball struck the ground near where Nelson was standing, the splinters from which uh, blinded him in his right eye. Contrary to popular belief, he never wore an eye patch, uh, but only a green shade attached to his hat. It was in this campaign that his reputation for fearlessness was born. As a child, he's reputed to have said to his grandmother, fear, I never saw fear, what is it? Nelson emerges from this period as a man who had decided that he was one of God's instruments for punishing French regicide, atheism, and egalitarianism. And he would do it through an unvarying policy of attack and repeated exhibitions of near suicidal bravery. The next year... After a daring and successful attack against the French outside Toulon, Admiral Sir John Jarvis appointed Nelson to the rank of Commodore, but it was three years later, uh, fighting under Jarvis in the Battle of Cape St. Vincent, that Napoleon displayed his flair for independent decision-making, risking court-martial and disgrace for leaving the line of battle without permission. Nelson, having spotted that the two divided sections of the, French, uh, sorry, of the Spanish fleet were about to reunite, sailed his ship, HMS Captain, straight into the 80-gun San Nicolas and led a boarding party which captured her, becoming the first Englishman to board a Spanish ship of the line since Sir Edward Howard in 1513. No sooner had the Spanish vessel um, struck her colours than Nelson proceeded to board, board a much larger enemy ship that had drifted alongside the 112-gun San Joseph, which he also captured. Jarvis embraced Nelson when he went aboard the flagship after the battle. The Commodore was knighted and promoted to Rear Admiral. Demonstrating a flair for self-promotion that soon made him unpopular with fellow officers, Nelson sent accounts of his own valour and success back to London for maximum distribution, including in the newspapers. He didn't need to exaggerate his successes, and his brother officers felt it left them in his shade. Later, in 1797, leading an exp expedition to try to capture a Spanish treasure ship sheltering at Tenerife, Napoleon lost his right arm to grape shot from the fortress of Santa Cruz. A left-handed admiral will never again be considered, he, he lamented. I am become a burden to my friends and useless to my country. 
To have lost both an eye and an arm in action only underlined for his men the fact that he would never ask them to undertake anything of which he was not himself willing. Fanny had not seen her husband for nearly five years when he returned as Admiral Sir Horatio Nelson, hero of the Battle of Cape St Vincent, blind in one eye and having lost his right arm, which had to be cut off below the shoulder in an operation undertaken without anaesthetic. Fanny served the... um, sorry, nursed the infected uh, stump of his arm, and due to what one biographer has called her angelic tenderness, he recovered well enough to sail off again to the Mediterranean to hunt down Napoleon's expedition to Egypt. During that period, Nelson was on half pay, suffering from an abdominal hernia from the battle, occasionally feeling feverish and taking laudanum, essentially opium, to dull the pain of the daily dressings his wound uh, required from his wife. Nelson had a slight frame, as the Admiral's uniform in the Royal Maritime Museum at Greenwich shows. He was five foot five inches tall, had a delicate constitution, and he never thought himself far away from death. His poor, decent, dowdy, long-suffering wife Fanny tended him and loved him, but soon she was up against the blousy, sexy charms of Emma, Lady Hamilton, and she didn't stand a chance. Going to sea again as soon as he had recovered in 1798, it was Nelson's inspired guess that General Bonaparte's fleet, which had slipped past the British uh, blockade of Toulon, had made for Egypt, and on the evening of the 1st of August 1798, he finally caught up with it, uh, lying at harbour at Aboukir Bay in the mouth of the Nile. Before this time tomorrow, he told his officers on the eve of battle, I shall have gained a peerage or Westminster Abbey. By sailing five ships round the head of the French line through the shallows to attack from the landward side as well as the seaward where the French had not armed their guns, Nelson won one of the most decisive victories in naval history. Out of 13 French capital ships, only two escaped, um, leaving Napoleon's army utterly stranded in Asia. Nelson's headlong attack has been criticised, but uh, was due to the wind being fair and the French unprepared, which they might not have been the next day. And today you can go and see French muskets and coinage uh, brought up from the seabed that uh, are now in the Egyptian National Museum in Cairo. After the Nile, Nelson was indeed elevated to the peerage and deluged with valuable presents from the Tsar of Russia, Sultan of Turkey, City of London, East India Company, and so on. He was not yet 40 years old and it saw the burgeoning of his colossal vanity. It was when he was recuperating in Naples from a severe wound to the forehead occurred during the battle that he fell in love with Emma Hamilton, who did nothing to prick his sense of self-importance. Indeed, when he complained that he'd only been made a baron, the lowest uh, rank in the order of peerage, she told him she would not be content until he was Marquis Nile, Viscount Pyramid, and Baron Crocodile. The problem one has in describing Emma Hamilton is that she changed so much during her life, altering herself with her circumstances. Against Romney's beautiful portrait of her at the Frick, we have Sir Gilbert Elliot saying that her figure was, quote, nothing short of monstrous in its enormity and with the easygoing manners of a barmaid. Um, As for the singing that she undertook at dinners in Nelson's honour, Lady Holland uh, described it as, quote, vile discordant screaming. 
Emma would produce um, and perform cringe-makingly embarrassing impromptu dances too. Quote, it was not certainly, sorry, it was certainly not of a nature to be performed except before a select company, recorded one guest, as the screams, attitudes, starts and embraces with which one, with which it was interrupted, gave it a peculiar character. Yet she was undoubtedly sexy and she ensorcelled Nelson easily. A modern biographer of, um, of Nelson, John Sugden, describes the young lady Hamilton as an arresting presence in the prime of life, tall, strong-limbed, voluptuous, her stunningly beautiful countenance, uh, as expressive and commanding as it was classical, cast with an enormous angry oban mane, and all held in service of an energetic, vibrant, and often tempestuous personality. She was constitutionally histrionic, besotted with attention, noise and company in which she thrived and shone. Some people go for women like that. Um, <laughs> others don't. Nelson certainly did. When Nelson finally returned to Britain after Naples, he was an adored national hero. Ladies wore bonnets with the hero of the Nile embroidered and, uh, on them in sequins. When he toured the countryside, working men would unharness his horses and pull his carriage along themselves. He loved all this and actively manipulated his image, sanctioning idealized portraits and prints that looked absolutely nothing like him. He rode in triumph in the Lord Mayor's show, but was received coldly at court by King George III, who prized marital fidelity. And very unusually for his family, he even practiced it himself. <laughs> Yet for all Nelson's genius at sea, little could be done um, by Britain to hinder Napoleon's domination of the European continent. And Britain was still stood in danger of invasion by Napoleon's huge Grande Armée stationed in the Channel ports. In order to maintain the blockade of France, um, it became necessary, sadly, to attack the Danish fleet at Copenhagen in April 1801. Vice Admiral Nelson was second in command to Admiral Parker, and when he was ordered to discontinue the action, he ignored it and fought on through to total victory. It's sadly untrue that he put his telescope to his blind eye and joked, I really do not see the signal. As at Cape St. Vincent, the subsequent victory completely vindicated this gross act of insubordination, but it didn't make him popular with his fellow admirals. Nelson's own uh, commanding officer and mentor, Earl St. Vincent, wrote that, quote, animal courage was the sole merit of Lord Nelson, his private character most disgraceful in every sense of the word. Yet he nonetheless also said that Nelson possessed the magic art of infusing the same spirit into others which inspired his own actions. This was the key to, Napoleon, to Nelson's war leadership. He was loved by ordinary seamen in the fleet and had the ability to inspire others sometimes simply by his mere presence at an action. Against this love of Nelson, at least outside the officer class, must be set the accusation that he was responsible for a cold-blooded war crime in Naples in late June 1799. There's little doubt of the fact that Nelson's actions led directly to the deaths of 99 pro-Jacobin prisoners of war after the British commander on the spot, Captain Edward Foote, had signed a treaty guaranteeing their safety once they'd surrendered. Certainly, when one uh, visits today the Castel del Oglio in um, Naples, one immediately recognizes how hard it would have been to have captured the castle if it hadn't been surrendered by the rebels. Nelson's defenders maintain that it wasn't exactly a treaty, that Foote had no authority to sign it anyhow, that it was the Neapolitan royalists rather than the British who found the Jacobins guilty after a proper court-martial, that the victims were legally rebels rather than genuine prisoners of war, and so on. 
But as the British Liberal leader Charles James Fox pointed out, Nelson's behaviour did stain the British name, especially when he also refused to allow a Christian burial for the rebels' uh, naval commander, Commodore Francesco Caraccioli. Um, after he was hanged from the yardarm and ordered instead that his body be merely weighted down and tossed into the sea. Emma's bloodthirstiness in toasting the man's death was equally distasteful. Nelson's biographer, Tom Pocock, concludes that it was um, Caracoli's uh, misfortune that his path crossed Nelson's at a time when the latter was displaying an uncharacteristic ruthlessness in carrying out the cruel customs of war. Nelson certainly saw himself as acting on behalf of an ally, the Bourbon King Ferdinand I, and his wife, um, uh, Queen Maria Carolina of the uh, Two Sicilies, who um, Nelson had helped escape from the Jacobin-inspired revolution which had set up the Republic, which lasted for 144 days. Nelson, who hated Jacobinism, effectively treated the rebels as if they were mutineers at sea. The nearest analogy might be if Lenin or Trotsky had fallen into the hands of the Whites during the Russian Civil War and Winston Churchill had looked the other way when they were executed, rather than officially striving to prevent it. At the end of Britain's long-lived, sorry, short-lived Peace of Amiens uh, with France in 1803, Nelson was appointed to command the Royal Navy in the Mediterranean, where he proceeded to blockade Toulon, not stepping off his flagship, HMS Victory, for more than 10 days over the next two years. Meanwhile, the newly crowned um, Emperor Napoleon posed by far the greatest invasion threat to the United Kingdom between the Spanish Armada in 1588 and the evacuation from Dunkirk in 1940. It was in order to destroy the combined French and Spanish fleets that were expected to carry Napoleon's invasion force across the Channel that Nelson left England for what turned out to be the last time in the autumn of 1805. The poet Robert Southey witnessed Nelson's departure from South Sea Beach. Quote, a crowd collected, pressing forward to obtain sight of his face. Many were in tears and many knelt down before him and blessed him as he passed. England has had many heroes, but never one so entirely possessed the love of his many fellow countrymen. One of those accompanying uh, Nelson on his final journey from the George Inn at Portsmouth to HMS Victory was someone called Admiral Sir Isaac Coffin, um, omens rarely come more blatant than that, um, except perhaps in the case of his distant kingsman, Colonel Richard Pinecoffin. <laughs> I entreat, my dear Emma, that you will cheer up, Nelson wrote to Lady Hamilton on the 15th of September 1805, and we will look forward to many happy years and be surrounded by our children's children. He looked forward to peace, but only one on British terms. Having written the previous year, I most sincerely hope that by the destruction of Buonaparte, uh, that war with all nations will cease. It was one of the few times in his life that the Admiral was being naive. On the 19th of October 1805, the French and Spanish combined fleet of 33 ships of the line suddenly left the safety of Cadiz Harbour in southern Spain and attempted to pass through the Straits of Gibraltar. Lord Nelson immediately gave chase with his 27 ships of the line. Although outnumbered in ships, men and guns, he put his trust in the superb fighting quality of his, street, of his fleet and promised the Admiralty back in London that they could rely upon his every exertion that as an enemy's fleet they may be annihilated. Annihilation was a word he often used. It was what he ceaselessly looked for in battle. The dawn of Monday the 21st of October was misty 
um, but gave way to fine weather a few hours later when the combined fleet was spotted from the top masts um, of HMS Victory, a few miles to the west of Cape Trafalgar in the Azores. Nelson summoned his captains and explained his battle plan, which was in essence to smash through the enemy's line in two columns, roughly cutting it into equal thirds, and then to concentrate the faster and more accurate British firepower on the rear two-thirds, thus equaling up the numbers between the combined fleet and the Royal Navy. By cutting the enemy line in three, Nelson hoped to bring on what was called a pell-mell battle that he believed would give him a chance to destroy more enemy ships than in the traditional line-versus-line engagement. So he signalled the fleet to form order of sailing in two columns. It was imaginative and daring, and the way he explained it to his captains was nicknamed by them the Nelson Touch. The plan required tremendous skill and courage to implement, since the enemy were going to be able to fire broadsides into the British ships for an agonisingly long time before they could respond. Nelson led one column in victory, and Vice Admiral Sir Cuthbert Collingwood, his second in command, the other in HMS Royal Sovereign. Another of his orders, no captain can do very wrong if he places his ship alongside that of the enemy, has been wrongly interpreted as being contemptuous of the enemy. In fact, it marked Nelson's concern that some of the ships at the tail ends of the two British columns would not get into close quarter action with enough October daylight to ensure the crushing result he craved. At 11.48am, while the drums were beating the call to action, the gun ports were being raised and the cannon ran out and the decks were being sanded down to make them less slippery when the blood started to flow, Nelson ordered the famous signal, England expects that every man will do his duty to be hoisted from his flagship. He told Flag Lieutenant Pascoe that he hoped it would amuse the fleet. Instead, it has inspired generations of Britons. He then uh, himself set off painfully slowly during to the, due to the weak wind to engage no fewer than three French ships, the Neptune, Bucentaur and Redoubtable. Nelson's battle plan involved his captains keeping their composure and steadying their men and steering silently in line ahead, taking enemy broadside fire as they did so. To be on the receiving end of a full-scale broadside from a ship of the line was a truly terrible thing. But Collingwood coolly ate an apple as Royal Scovrin was being raked with fire before he could return a shot. Under heavy fire from the Bucentaur and Redoubtable, Victory managed to sail between them, pouring fire into each of them as, as she passed. Bucentaur was raked from helm to stern, and the 74-gun Redoubtable was rammed by Victory swinging to starboard as the rigging of the two great ships locked together. Today we can scarcely comprehend the horror of a sea battle such as Trafalgar. For hours after hours, um, cannons firing 18, 24 and sometimes 32-pound iron cannonballs smashed into the wooden hulls, sending long shards of timber and splinters flying around the packed decks. The 27 British ships of the line at Trafalgar had a total of 2,148 guns, many of them much higher calibre than the 400 guns that Napoleon and Wellington had in total at Waterloo. The French and Spanish had 2,862 guns in total, so together there were more than 12 times more cannon at Trafalgar than at Waterloo, and they were kept just as busy. In the four hours at Trafalgar, uh, HMS Victory used between six and seven tonnes of gunpowder, firing 4,243 cannonballs and 371 double-headed grape and case shot and 4,000 musket balls. For those up on the top deck, there was the ever-present terror of being raked with grape shot. 
Ships catching fire and gunpowder explosions were ever-present hazards, as was drowning in an age when few seamen could swim. And the average age of the Britons present at Trafalgar was 22. The firing of the Royal Marines uh, stationed at the hammock nettings of victory was almost point-blank range, and any hope of French boarding parties landing on her was destroyed by the murderous fire aimed at them by the 68-pound carronades firing grape shot on her forecastle. The British, um, and indeed the stern, they had one on each side, the one on each end. The British broadsides from below were fired at such short range that to miss was impossible. Yet unfortunately, the same was true, of course, of the French snipers stationed in the Redoubtable's rigging. Nelson had paid a guinea each for the four large silver-embroidered stars that were sewn onto his coat, plus 25 shillings for the Neapolitan Order of St. Ferdinand. The place he chose to stand during the battle also meant that, as one of his biographers put it, it did not take marksmanship to hit an admiral covered in stars at 50 feet. He was almost inviting a sharpshooter's bullet as he sparkled away, on the quarterdeck of HMS Victory. The French sniper's musket was charged with a lead ball measuring 0.69 inches in diameter and weighing 0.71 ounces. You can see it today in the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich, along with Nelson's uniform and the hole that it uh, caused when the bullet hit Nelson's left shoulder. It's about there and knocked him to the ground. In the din of the uh, battle, of course, no one heard the shot, but its effect was devastating both on Nelson and Britain. The ball struck Nelson high in the front of his left shoulder, piercing the epaulette and dragging uh, pieces of gold lace and silk pad with it as it drove deep into his body. Actually, it's a little bit higher up the, uh, when you go to see the, um, the bullet. He suffered fractured ribs, a perforated lung, a spinal injury and a ruptured artery, but apparently made little complaint, merely stating, I felt it break my back. To prevent the, audio, the, the crew becoming demoralised, a handkerchief was placed over his head, um, over his face, as he was taken below decks. Once there, he was laid out, and the surgeon quickly ascertained that the admiral had been right and there was nothing that could be done for him. For another three hours, Nelson's life ebbed away as the battle continued. First, the redoubtable surrendered with 522 dead out of 643 um, crew. Then the Spanish uh, flagship Santissima Trinidad. They have done for me at last, he, uh, Nelson told Victory's Captain Hardy. My backbone is shot through. It was a poignant, slow, painful death in the lantern-lit uh, cockpit. I should have liked to have lived a little longer, he said. Don't throw me overboard, Hardy. Captain Hardy, this he was talking to. Hardy, I believe that they have done it at last. Before he died, however, Hardy was able to inform Nelson that 14 enemy ships had surrendered for the loss of not one single British vessel. The final count was actually um, much better. 22 enemy ships were sunk or captured for the loss of nil to the Royal Navy. His last um, uh, words were sublime. Thank God I have done my duty. And then Nelson slipped into immortal glory. King George III shrewdly observed to the hero's brother that Nelson's death was precisely the one he wanted. At this point, I'd like to show you three clips of the 1941 movie That Hamilton Woman. Uh, the first depicts Sir William Hamilton explaining to Emma, played by Vivian Lee, what role um, Britain was playing in the Napoleonic Wars. Actually, there's a bit of mansplaining going on um, uh, right at the beginning, I'm, I'm, uh, I have to tell you. The second shows Nelson, played by Laurence Olivier, 
arguing that no peace could be made with Napoleon, but of course meaning Hitler too, um, because of the context of the um, of the movie. And then the last clip shows Nelson making the England expects signal. It was Churchill's favourite movie. He saw it 17 times. Um, and I hope it'll show you what uh, Nelson has meant to generations of Britons. <laughs> When Nelson died at Trafalgar, the young Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who was in Italy at the time, found himself repeatedly accosted by Englishmen he didn't know, with tears running down there and his cheeks. Benjamin West portrayed Nelson ascending into the arms of a deified Britannia, dogs, carnations, streets, the largest column in London, and even a new strain of gooseberry were named after him. He was a particularly English hero when the Irish Republican Army wanted to make an anti-English protest to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Easter Rising in 1966. They blew up the statue of Nelson in the middle of Dublin. Nelson's funeral brought, Mel uh, brought uh, London to a halt. It had been a long time since anyone had such, inspired such popular adulation and there was to be no other such massive public outpouring of emotion until the death of Princess Diana in 1997. Although eight admirals, all of them in tears, carried his coffin, such was his controversial status in the admiralty that 18 other admirals refused to attend. Um, it was a male-only occasion to which both Lady Nelson and um, Emma Hamilton were therefore also excluded. I came across a hitherto unpublished account of the funeral recently. Actually, it was in an autograph shop in Paris on Friday, um, um, which stated how, on seeing the diminutive stature, stature of the man, it's surprising that the bullet was able to find its mark, and in the middle of this really triumphal pomp, he was laid to rest about the kings, of, uh, the kings and the giants of the ages. The war leadership lessons we learn from Nelson are to grasp the initiative and not let the enemy rest it back to break the rules and disobey orders if necessary, to practice for battle ceaselessly, as Nelson did in his two-year siege of Toulon, um, so that the men behave in combat as if it were second nature, to hate your enemy with a clear ideological blue flame, and to have a treasury back home prepared to finance the organisation of fantastically expensive operations like Toulon. Um, it's estimated that in 1805, some 40% of Britain's entire national tax revenue was spent on the Royal Navy. Uh, to be, of course, personally extraordinarily brave and to foster a reputation for berserk offensive, um, offensives that always kept the enemy on the back foot. And what of those personality failings, ladies and gentlemen, the vanity, the absurdly inflated amour propre, uh, the love of flattery, um, believes the historian John Adamson, were integral to the realisation of Nelson's undoubted genius as a naval commander. Nelson the incorrigible show-off was part and parcel of Nelson the victor of Trafalgar. Dreadful husband, passionate lover, convinced francophobe, vain egotist, Nelson was also Britain's greatest hero who made his country impregnable for over a century. Although he could not win the Napoleonic Wars, Nelson ensured that Britain wouldn't lose them. Although Napoleon marched in triumph through almost all the great capital cities of Europe of the day, Madrid, Vienna, Warsaw, Berlin, M M Milan, Turin, Prague, Amsterdam and Dresden, just as he had also marched through Cairo and Moscow, Lord Nelson ensured he never marched through London. In Trafalgar Square today, uh, Horatio Nelson stands atop a 160-foot column, but he stands even higher than that in the love and regard of his country for he was, as Emma Hamilton put it so perfectly, the guardian angel of England.
Thank you very much. <clears throat> I've got some questions that I've been handed. I think you're going to um, be giving me some more. I'm going to uh, rattle through them. Um, what was Nelson's opinion of the Americans? Oh, dear. I, was, <laughs> I didn't want to have to come to this, but somebody's... Uh, somebody. um, shipbuilding and seamanship, you ask, um, is, uh, it was very good. But unfortunately, he didn't think terribly highly of your um, decision to... Um, to become independent, and he thought that the worst Americans of them all were New Yorkers. Um, <laughs> moving swiftly on. Um, was Nelson religious? Was he an Anglican or Presbyterian? He was an Anglican. His father was an Anglican um, uh, priest, and he was uh, an Anglican. He was a, a, um, and very God-fearing. What qualities of leadership do you attribute to Nelson uh, why were his officers so devoted to him? Well, those were the ones that I think I mentioned there, this, uh, this capacity to, uh, to inspire and to lead from the front and to um, use his seamanship, extraordinary seamanship, to take risks, such as at the Battle of the Nile, where he sent his force round the, both sides of the, um, of the French through shallows that other people, including the French, thought were impenetrable, um, but which he worked out weren't. Why didn't Nelson financially provide for Lady Hamilton in the event of his death at Trafalgar? Because he was, uh, she was his mistress, and to have mentioned her in the will would have been completely unacceptable behaviour in, um, in 1805. One also thinks about... Uh, she, he thought of her as he was dying. He thought of his country and he thought of his duty, but he also uh, spoke a lot about her, asking that she be taken care of. In the same way that Charles II asked that ne let not poor Nelly starve, about uh, Nell Gwynne, but the families, needless to say, had no interest in, in uh, looking after the mistresses in both cases. Um, I think anybody who's intending to embark on a career as a mistress um, ought to um, bear in mind these drawbacks and take out a large insurance policy on the life of the, of the lover. Um, did Nelson have children? If so, did they achieve any significance? Um, he had... Oh, this is a very interesting question. To this day, we don't know whether it was one or two children. Um, uh, he didn't have any by Fanny, but by, um, by Emma, he um, possibly had two, that, and she only told him about one. Um, and uh, the other one is, is thought to have gone to... Also called Emma, is thought to have gone to the Foundling Hospital. But the directors of the Foundling Hospital um, say that they've, they've checked their records, which were, which were kept impeccably at the time, and there's, no, um, there's not even a person who, who comes anywhere near seeming like it might have been Emma Hamilton's child. As for Horatia, um, she lived a, lived a, took care of her mother when she was very young, when she was only 13, and, um, and lived to a ripe old age. Um, the title, therefore, went to... Nelson's brother, Earl Nelson, who um, managed to be given a £5,000 a year um, um, pension by Parliament, which is worth about $2 million in, in today's money. And they carried on paying this every year to the Nelson family, the British government, until 1947. Um, how long did it take to reload the French and English cannons? Um, I believe the faster Brits had a considerable firepower advantage. Yes, it took, uh, it took 120 seconds 
um, for the British, two minutes, therefore, for the British to, um, uh, to reload, but, um, but much longer for the, for the Spanish and French, and that was one of the reasons that, we, um, that there is no French um, naval victory in the whole of the Napoleonic Wars. Um, how did Lord Nelson attain his lordship, and what is the meaning behind that title? Um, he, he won it at the Battle of um, the Nile, and it meant that he became a member of the House of Lords, the upper chamber of the um, British um, bicameral legislature, and it also held a great um, social status to be a peer in, in those days. What do you say about Bertrand Russell? Um, said, why is it that enemy, na enemy nations worship most who have killed the most foreigners, um, worship those most who have killed the mo most foreigners. Um, yeah, it's quite a bright thing for Bertrand Russell to have said. Um, <laughs> but um, nonetheless, I think uh, it w wasn't really, um, the, the, the glory of Nelson isn't really that he's killed the most foreigners at all, but that he's kept, um, he kept Britain safe during his lifetime. And that Trafalgar knocked out the, um, the only major navy that uh, was likely to threaten Britain after that as well. And of course, um, the brother admirals that continued, actually at his funeral, quite a few admirals, 18 admirals refused to go. He was a controversial figure, but um, they did keep up his, um, his legacy uh, for the whole of the rest of the 19th century. Here's another one. What does the Nelson spirit mean for Britain today? Do war generals still follow his example? Actually, um, he is toasted every 21st of October by the, um, by the Royal Navy. There is a fantastic sense of, um, of the Nelsonian spirit in the First World War. Uh, the commander of the, of the um, British Navy at the time, Earl Beattie, uh, saw himself as another Nelson. Um, when you go to um, uh, go and have uh, dinner with the um, uh, with the navy on the twenty first of October, they 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 uh, toast the immortal memory. They're all allowed to do it sitting down. You don't have to stand up um, for the royal toast, the loyal toast, or the toast to Nelson on uh, in when you're dining with um, sailors. I, I can't remember why it's something to do with hitting your head on the on the. Um, no, I think the reason was that uh, if the ship was uh, was um, in in trouble, you um, you didn't have to uh, sort of fall over while standing up for the loyal toast. But um, he is remembered uh, very much, and he is the ultimate uh, hero for the Royal Navy. And um, the you can dine on uh, on HMS Victory, which is totally un unchanged from the. Um, uh, from the from the time of the battle, um, and uh, and it's wonderful. It gives you very much. They've got all the cannons in all the places they originally were. You can you can go to Portsmouth and and walk over this extraordinary uh, warship, and um, and it's very moving, including of course the plaque that uh, shows precisely where Nelson fell. Any more? Is that a lot? That's it. All right. I mean, yes. What about this lady? Come on, because we've we've still got another five minutes of me. What happened to Captain Hardy? Kiss me, Kiss me Hardy. Well, he, he, yes, he, it, was a, it, was a, it was a very, the Regency period, there was no um, um, sort of um, sense that there was anything wrong with, uh, with a, a dying man being kissed by his, uh, by his friend and his, um, his flag captain. It, it didn't um, imply really anything other than um, this, a, a close male friendship in battle. 
Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much, Andrew Roberts. We look forward to your return next season. Thank you all for coming. I, I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs. Just want to remind you. 10th of October. Yes, Andrew Roberts will return 10th of October. I just want to remind you, he will be signing books. Our museum store is on the 77th Street side. You can purchase his books there. I also want to second Louise's um, announcement for Churchill, Roosevelt, and Company. Lou, Lou Lehrman will be speaking on Wednesday, May 3rd. It is selling out. There are still some seats left, so if he's terrific. Lou Lehrman, he's going to give a great talk. So I would grab them when you can. Again, we look forward to seeing you. Thank you all so much, and have a great evening.